Hello and welcome to the RPG Academy podcast. My name is Michael, and we are here today as part of our podcast series, Journey Through the Realms, to discuss the Council of Worms D&D setting. Council of Worms was originally published um, in 1994 for the second edition of Advanced Dungeons and Dragons, and it was designed and written by Bill Slavisic. Hopefully that's close. Joining me today to talk about Council of Worms is my guest, Carl David Brown. Carl, welcome to the Academy. Thank you. Thank you. So it's good to be here to talk about this. It's one of my favorite settings. And that's why you're the person to talk to. Uh, now, just quickly, uh, we met through, is it the Piazza Forum? Yeah, is that the what? Piazza Forum. Yeah. Okay. Because I've been finding people on my on my normal Twitter. I've just been throwing out like, hey, I need people. And I guess it's someone who runs that forum or is up, you know, in part of the process, he or she mm-hmm. or they um, suggested that I post on the forum. And so far, you're the only one I've actually got in contact with because I'm still looking for someone for Dragonlands and Forgotten Realms. Uh, and you're yeah. like, I'll talk about Council of Worms. I'm sold. You are in, sir. Uh, <laughs> but s- since I don't really know you that well, uh, tell me a little bit about yourself before we get into the show. Like, who is Carl David Brown? Okay. So um, I suppose the first thing to do is talk about how long I've been in the hobby. I started playing when, when I was a kid. So embarrassingly, that's about 40 years ago now. Same. Um, yep. <laughs> uh, at the moment, I am part of the RPG Review Cooperative, which produces a little fanzine. Um, and I've also got my own game that's been in beta forever called Gulliver's Trading Company. Uh, but the reason I'm here today is, as you mentioned, I am pretty active on the Piazza Forum, which discusses old, well, mostly discusses old D&D settings. And uh, the Council of Worms is sort of my jam there. <laughs> so I, I mentioned like in all these that we've done so far, and, and I don't know what order they'll come out in. I haven't made yeah. that decision yet. So this <laughs> this could be the first one, this could be the last one somewhere in the middle, yeah. is I don't actually have a lot of history with some of the more famous settings. Like I know about Forgotten Realms, but I've never really been a fan of it. Mm-hmm. I've preferred to do homebrew. I think Eberron is probably my favorite setting that I've actually played in. But Council of Worms is one that I purchased as a box set in the early 90s. I remembered that cover. uh, Very, you know, probably traditional. I was a forever DM. I was in high school. I was a terrible DM. My players were terrible players because we were high schoolers and we're dumb. And, you know, the thing that drew me to that was that you get to play as dragons. And I mean, and that's spoiler warnings. That's what this box set is all about, is allowing players to actually play as dragons. But I never played it. I owned it for years and years. I eventually sold all of my D&D stuff to a half price bookstore for way less than I should have. I've regretted it ever since. So I no longer have it. Um, but I still have fond memories of flipping through it that first time and buying it and that kind of thing. But I want to start with you. I want to talk about you. So what is your Council of Worms origin story? So, you know, did you buy it at the bookstore? Just tell me about it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So the whole thing sort of, like you, I started, you know, back in, well, even before high school, I started DMing um, and spent most of my AD&D first and second edition ever broke for you know, being a kid or being a student. Yep. Um, and I was also a, a compulsive world builder. So I tended mm-hmm. to write my own homebrews and everything. And so Council of Worms, I picked it up a few times, flicked through it, never, never really picked it up until quite recently, you know, skip ahead 30 years. Right. And I'm an adult with zero free time. <laughs> um, <laughs> And so a big box set full of adventures and stuff is really appealing. And the the map in particular is gorgeous. It's way better than anything I could do myself. So I picked it up and sort of reading through it, you know, first impressions, the art, we'll come back to that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but as I got into it, I started to realize that there are these underlying themes. Yeah, you get to play a dragon. But there's a lot of a lot more to it to that, and a lot that's really different and interesting compared to your standard D and D setting or fantasy novel. So, getting into those themes is what sort of hooked me in as an adult, and 
um, I started preparing to run a campaign and that stuff led to me posting stuff on the Piazza, which is uh, conversion materials to fifth edition and things like that. So um, that's kind of where it came from. Okay. Um, and obviously, I'm like, a, I've been fascinated with dragons forever. So oh, yeah. I mean, who isn't, yeah, right? <laughs> exactly. So yeah. the, the, the thing that kind of, that I remember most, because again, I never actually played in this setting. I, I bought it. I read it. I'm sure I stole pieces and parts, probably NPC names. I probably took the map that was in there and, and did something else with it. Yeah. But I, what stuck out to me was that, yes, you get to be a dragon, but you don't get to be a dragon in the sense that you're playing like the D&D you played before, but you're a dragon because you're in a world where everyone is playing a dragon. So in a yeah. way, you're, you're not special in the world, but you're special in that you're getting to play this creature, this being that you've never gotten to play before. So, I mean, I think, again, I think that's, that's what's on the box. The, you know, that's what it promises yeah. you. You get to be dragons. But outside of that, what do you think about the setting that this setting does differently, better, or let's just go with differently, differently than some of the other D&D settings like <clears throat> your Forgotten Realms? Yeah, I, so I think it comes down to a few sort of core themes. And, you know, we've all, it's kind of like, you know, Battletech and there's a, the giant stompy robots and everyone thinks about those and they totally forget that there's this, very complex, rather interesting setting as well as the robots. You know, there's all this other stuff going on. Okay. So Castle, Castle Worms is kind of the same in that, you know, you can play a, the, the sort of the two choices you have as a player is you can play a dragon and a kindred, which is kind of like their servant who they go adventuring with. Okay. Or you can play a half dragon, right? So straight out of the box, everyone knows about that. But what they don't know is that you know, in other fantasy settings, you're thinking about, okay, it's the, there's usually this war with evil that's in the deep past, um, mm -hmm. or even in the present, in the case of Lord of the Rings, you're fighting Sauron, you're trying to stop evil. It's the good guys versus the bad guys. Well, in Counselor Worms, it's not really about fighting the war with evil. It's about preventing that war from happening, happening in the first place. Okay. So that's, kind of different you know like you have to you have to work out a way that you can live alongside evil and compromise rather than crusade against it so that's a, a big difference compared to other less nuanced settings that you might see out there that have this same sort of epic feel right um, now, are you familiar with the eberron setting at all um, I am familiar with it only by listening to the uh, podcast that you guys did a little while back about it. Okay. <laughs> That's pretty much my entire knowledge okay. of everyone. Because well, um, the only thing I, I, I just wanted to mention is um, – that uh, one of the big things within the Eberron setting is what's called the Draconic Prophecy, which are these mm -hmm. dragons that are subtly and in some ways not so subtly trying to influence the direction of the humanoid races. And I almost wonder if Keith Baker played Council of Worms mm -hmm. and that that's yeah. like a, it's like a campaign in that setting that is running alongside that, that yeah. that's his manifestation of the Council of Worms setting in Eberron. I have no idea. Uh, probably will never get a chance to ask him, but if I do, I will. Well, that kind of, that kind of touches on something else about Council of Worms. Is, uh, Bill Slavicsek, the, the author, anyway, he went on to be head of research R and, of role-playing game R&D at WotC during the 3E era. Uh -huh. And so there's a lot of stuff that you first see in Council of Worms that echoes through that you know dnd third edition era and even into today mm -hmm. um and so if you're interested in the history of dnd and where things came from then council of worms is of interest for that reason as well okay you know um so you know a lot of the ideas that first appeared in council of worms end up in say the third edition draconomicon um the half dragons that i mentioned briefly earlier uh, one of, there's others, but they're one of the design ancestors of the Dragonborn that are in the 5th edition player's handbook. Right. So there's all these connections and things that, yeah, but the everyone idea I hadn't 
<laughs> made that connection. Yeah. Uh, so I think Bill, when I um, when I first started doing this, his name comes up a lot. He was yeah. clearly very involved in a lot of the second edition and into third development. Um, and mm. I, he has a very long list of credits and accolades. Um, so I, I, that, that wasn't a name I was familiar with, but I keep seeing yeah. it when I go into these deep dives of all these different settings. Yeah. So uh, he definitely had some influence and things. That, that's interesting. So, uh, you know, kind of my first official question beyond the ones I already asked is, you know, what are some of the <laughs> unique features of the setting? Uh, so I think that kind of leads into that. Are there any yeah. other things that you can think of that maybe we've seen the, you know, the, the lineage in now fifth edition that came from there? Yeah, so some of the things that sort of started in Council of Worms and ended up in 5th edition or have different takes in different editions. I mean, the the idea that your dragon player character has this sort of almost like a sidekick who's your uh, a kindred, mm -hmm. um, they call it. Well, in the Draconomicon in 3rd edition, there's a prestige class called the Dragon Kith, which is basically exactly the same idea. Okay. Um, in Council of Worms, uh, dragons at the very end of the campaign, I'm just kind of skipping ahead a bit here, but you know, at the very end of your campaign, you've gone from like a little wormling, you've established your own lair and your own land, and you've become a ruler of kindred and everything. And then at the end, you start thinking, well, I don't want to die. And so the dragons have all these different ways of cheating death. Um, and you'll see those again in the Draconomicon and in other places. Um, they become landforms and become protectors of the land, or they become, they try to become gods themselves. And so there's the dragon ascendant prestige class in the third edition Draconomicon, for example. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of ideas there. Um, the... Following the half dragons is really interesting because there were a lot of attempts to do a humanoid dragon in D&D over the years. Um, and the half dragons is one of those. But these half dragons aren't like the half dragons you see later. So later half dragons are like basically dragons, but humanoid. Right. Uh, these, yeah, these guys, are they're born as elves, dwarfs, or gnomes. Um, and then when they hit adolescence, they start to transform. And they don't become humanoid dragons, but they become these unique creatures that are tall and thin, and they've got the same coloration as their dragon parent, um, and claws and, you know, the reptilian eyes and things, but they, they remain humanoids. You know, they've got, they've got no scales, they've got no wings, they've got no tails. Right. Um, so... Yeah, that transformation, we see that again in the original version of the Dragonborn from 3rd edition. Um, and they changed that later. But uh, yeah, so you just see these ideas skipping over and skipping over. Um, while we're talking about sort of things that are unique to Council of Worms, I think the other thing that, so there's two things that make the setting stand out. The first is that it's a non-human world. Mm -hmm. So the... Elves and dwarves and gnomes uh, make up the bulk of the population. And humans are basically like orcs. There's a few about living in the wild. Um, they're, not even, they're not even native to the island. They're, they're the fallen descendants of an attempted invasion. Uh, Sounds about right. Ago. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so you can't be a human player character. Um, and... You know, the, the, the non-human cultures are a big part of the setting as much as the dragons are mm -hmm. in a lot of ways because of that. And then the other of the two things I was going to bring up was, was psionics. There were two campaign settings in the second edition era that made a lot of use of the psionics and psionics rules. Um, one was obviously Dark Sun, and everybody knows about that. But a lot of people don't realize that in Council Worms, one third of the ruling class, because dragons are in charge and gem dragons have psychic powers. So a third of the ruling class are psychic characters with psionic powers. Um, and you can also be psionics 
for your elves, dwarfs, and gnomes as well. Yeah, I did not remember uh, that at all. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a lot of people don't realize it. It's one of those crazy things. Um, I suppose there a third thing. I know I said two, but oh, three. Um, <laughs> two point one. Two point two point one um, is most fantasy settings. They have like these pantheons of gods, and the gods all have temples and priests and clerks and things are a really big part of the setting and the influence of the gods. In some settings, you'll see avatars of the gods stomping about. In Council of Worms, religion is really low key. There are like zero formal churches or religions, there are zero formal religions in Council of Worms. Um, so the clerics are rare and they're like these wandering eccentric guys, dragons, elves, whatever, touched by the gods. It's the the non-humans have clerks as well. Um, and yeah, so that's that's another difference between say Council of Worms and the Forgotten Realms or these other camp a lot of the other big campaign settings. So again, I don't recall, but my 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 guess here is that there are probably rules for aerial combat. And I know that there mm -hmm. is some of that in some of the other books, but I would guess that maybe it's a little more fleshed out for this. So the there's there's a one there's a couple of things about aerial combat that are in Council of Worms. Uh, one is that there's some proficiencies for aerial combat to make you a better, there's actually a proficiency called aerial combat. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, and, then, and then the other thing is at the end of book one, um, there's a section on the challenge of wing and claw, which talks about how to run the formal jewels that they use. So the, Council of Worms was set up to prevent the dragons from going to war with each other. So this comes back to that whole avoiding the war with evil rather than questing against it. Right. Um, and part of that setup is a formal duel where they can only use their claws, bite, and they fight in the air, and the first dragon to touch the ground loses. So there's a little bit of elaboration there, but not as much as you might expect. I think they lean pretty heavily on the rules in the DM's guide for the second edition D&D has um, a lot more detail in there than there is, say, in fifth edition for aerial combat. You've got your maneuverability classes and things that you don't see in fifth edition. Um, so, yeah. So it sounds a little bit like sumo wrestling in a way, like, you know, instead of get them out of the ring, I get them out of the air. Um, yeah, yeah. And then, um, you know, obviously, in, especially in like second edition, from my memory, it's been a long time since I've played second yeah. edition. But whenever you encountered a dragon, in addition to being just fearsome beasts, they were often very high spellcasters. You know, very yeah. powerful. That in Council of Worms, does that carry over where spellcasting is a feature of a dragon, or do you still have classes like wizard dragons versus fighter dragons? Yeah. So the basic setup is there is a single dragon class, and that essentially reproduces what was in the second edition monster manual. Um, and again, sort of thinking about you know. Council of Worms and its history on the future development of the game. You know, this really powerful monster race class, we hadn't seen that before in AD&D. Um, uh, BECMI, there was like the Gazetteer series, mm -hmm. but this was sort of like the first monstrous race class in AD&D. Um, and the dragon class was a lot more powerful than the other plays handbook classes. So you couldn't, one of the limitations of Council of Worms and one of the reasons why it took me so long to actually pick up a box set was that you couldn't get a dragon character and port it across into your other campaign. Right. Or, and conversely, you couldn't get, say, you know, go through Sigil, the City of Doors and Planescape and take your characters to the Council of Worms. It didn't work very easily because there was no easily 
clear comparison between the dragon class and the other classes. Right. So it was really limited that way. So um, dragon class, there were 12 levels only to match the 12 age categories in the monster manual. Okay. Yep. And then as you progress through those, you pick up uh, wizard spells. And if your monster manual version had priest spells, you get those as well. Okay. So that's, that's the first thing. But then on top of that, there was two kits for dragons. Uh, no. Four kits. Anyway, there were kits for dragons. Okay. <laughs> um, and one of those was a dragon wizard where you gave up the spells that you normally get from the monster manual and you learn spells like a wizard and you get more of them. Uh, there was the dragon priest, which we kind of talked a about a little bit earlier. You know, these wandering mystics. Uh, and they get priest spells, and they get more spells than the regular dragon. And there's a dragon psionist, which was for gem dragons only. Okay. So, um, yeah, you could deviate a little bit, but yeah. And and I'm, I'm going to try to explain well, but I will probably do it poorly. <laughs> so feel free to jump in. Because kids are a thing that I remember and loved about earlier D&D, but it's not something that's been around mm -hmm. for a while. So I, yeah. I would, if someone's listening who doesn't know what a kit is, I would kind of explain it as it's sort of like a subclass, but it also modifies the rules a little bit. So you have a rogue yeah. that's your standard rogue, but then you might have a kit for a rogue that makes them like more specifically a burglar. And it gives them yeah. specific things that a burglar rogue can do, either that a regular rogue couldn't do or differently. And sometimes it borrows yeah. from other classes and gives them a different ability or it adds some, but how, how would yeah. you better explain what I said? Cause I'm sure I'm partially <laughs> wrong, if not completely wrong. Yeah. 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 So, uh, kits, I've had a lot of fun with the kits. Um, the, the, the kits, there was, is thing in second edition AD and there were kits and they modified your class a little bit. So it was in the same way that in fifth edition, say you had, you have these archetypes, like you have the primal paths of the barbarians and the different uh, domains for the clerics. The kits were kind of like that, um, but the modifications that they made to your class were generally more limited in scope mm -hmm. than, yeah. So you got a few things at the start, um, but they didn't keep changing your class after yeah. it was a lot of flavor but there was just a little bit of mechanics built yeah. in just a touch but just have to make them a little bit different i thought but i do i really have fond memories of kits and a lot of the supplemental yeah. books that came out were some of my favorite the the thing is the complete guide series had a complete guide to all the different things the complete guide to rogues is still one of my favorites which again i sold yeah. to half frost books for a ridiculously low price and yeah. i regret it yeah. uh but anyway <laughs> i digress uh, so um, my, yeah. so, uh, well, actually, you know, like the kit thing is really important to Council of Worms because for two reasons. First, you've got the dragon kits and every dragon has to have a kit. Whereas for regular characters, the kits were were optional. Right. Yeah. Okay. And then the second thing is, is coming back to that non-human world thing again, where there are no humans and all the kindred, are, which are the dragon servants, they're all elves, gnomes, or dwarves. But at the back of the second book in the book box set, they give you a list of kits. And those kits are mostly from those complete books, but the ones about the elves, the dwarves, and the gnomes. There's a few barred ones in there that are specific to race as well. So but I think Bill was, Slavixic was trying to say, like, you know, like, this is a dragon world, but there are no humans here. And so this is a place where we want to emphasize non-human cultures. And one way of doing that is to recommend these kits. These are the kits that are, that are available in this setting. And those kits are ones that are specific to these particular races. Right. Um, yeah. Okay. So, yeah. So the, so the next well, question, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah. No, no, I was just going to say, I, I was just, just going to say, you know, that's one way he emphasizes the non-human world. There's a bunch mm -hmm. of it in there, but that's, that's a major way. And I, yeah. I would love to talk to someone who knows, like, like I get the, I get the sense of why they would have done that because they want Council of Worms to feel different. 
And one of the easiest ways to do that is to make it a non-human dominated society. But was there other, like, was there other reasons to that beyond just, well, this makes it feel alien-ish? Uh, I just, or if some people are just like, I screw humans, you know, I just, I, I would like to know like what the design decision was, if it was, if there was meat to it, or if it was just a simple way, a shorthand of saying this is different. I, I think there, there is a degree of saying this is different. Um, and, you know, every, every campaign world in the second edition era had this thing where it wasn't defined by what it added. It was also defined by what was not included. Uh-huh. If you think about it, you know, you think about your dark sun, it adds all these new, it adds different a new different type of elf but your standard wood elves and things aren't present. Mm-hmm. There's no gnomes in Dark Sun. Um, and so Council, in Council of Worms, um, the thing was to make it this non-human world. And part of that, to differentiate it from the other campaign settings, was to jettison the humans. Right. Um, and this is really different to how things are done in D&D 5th edition, for example, where everything tends to be kitchen synced in together. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that's, that's one reason, I think. And, the other thing is it goes to the history of the setting and, you know, in a standard campaign world, humans have grown in number since the ancient days. And in the modern era, humans are in control, mm-hmm. right? But Council of Worms is set in the distant past and humans aren't in control yet. So... Part of it is to say, well, this is the distant past and humans are just really not a thing yet. And then the other part of the history of the world is the way that the Council of Worms, the governing United Nations of Dragons is the best way to think about it. Right. The, the way that that got started was that the dragons were fighting a big dragon war and the humans showed up in a massive invasion force. And they ran in and the dragons were too busy fighting each other at first and they couldn't cooperate. And the humans actually managed to take over areas of the land and kill a lot of dragons. And so the humans are set up as being like this species that you have to watch out for because they're actually a threat to dragon kind. Um, So with that adversarial relationship, um, it makes sense that the humans is going to be just as into the player character race. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Definitely makes yeah. sense. Uh, <laughs> so, so my next question is kind of like, it's the biggest and broadest of all the questions. And so sometimes people have very little to say here. Sometimes they have a lot to say here. Uh, so uh, you kind of get to pick and choose what you think is worthy of, of airtime. So when you're thinking about the setting of council of worms, what are some of the important features or locations? So this is like, you know, an area of the world, part of the map, uh, you know, a physical location you can visit, or if there's any specific NPCs that you would interact with or storylines from the box set that you just think are important that people might be interested in. Yeah. So I think with the Council of Worms, the, the way that the campaign set up, if you play it out of the box, there's this organization called the Council of Worms, but sort of beneath that and supporting that are the custodians. So the custodians of concordance are kind of like the bureaucracy that supports the United Nations. Um, and so as a young hatchling, you are born to the custodians. Um, and in a standard campaign, you play out the first 25 years of your life as a dragon as an agent of these custodians. So they're, they're obviously an important part of the setting. Um, the custodians also are charged with looking after the Eerie. So the Eerie is sort of the primary location, your home base when you start off. Um, and it was built thousands of years ago and using mighty magics, they tore off the top of a mountain and levitated it across and dropped it onto the plains and then carved out 
this enormous chamber inside and um, false caves and things uh, for dragons to live in or to stay in temporarily while they visited the council. So the council chamber is inside this thing called the Eerie and the challenge of wing and claw, which is those formalized jewels, mm -hmm. that takes place above the Eerie in a delineated area, which is huge. Um, and you can't go outside that area either. So you can't touch the ground, you can't leave the dueling area. Um, and so that area is kind of like the, the biggest, most detailed place in the setting. Um, and Michael, who is the head of the Custodians of Concordance, is sort of a major NPC. Okay. Um, yeah. Uh, Michael's a ancient amethyst dragon. So people who are fairly new to D&D may not know about gem dragons. So you have metallic dragons, they're the good guys. You have chromatic dragons, which are usually some flavor of evil. And then in earlier editions of D&D, we had gem dragons, which were neutral dragons sitting firmly in between those two. So Michael is kind of a mediator that keeps the council running um, and acts as sort of a chair person when the council is in session. Um, but, you know, you've got to remember that Council of Worms was just one box set. Yeah. And if, yeah, there's a few magazine articles and a couple of adventures, but um, it was basically one box set. So a lot of places get a name check or very a couple of sentences. Right. And you go, that's cool, but that's all you know about it. Yep. Yep. Um, you know, there's some of the cities, there's cities built of coral, there's cities made of living trees, there's cities that are floating on top of clouds. Um, so there's a lot of magical places in there. Um, and, you know, one of my sort of favorite ideas from this is that is the burning sea. So to the south of the islands, the sea temperature goes up and up and up because underneath there's all these volcanic vents and volcanoes and what have you right and the look yeah the legend of the dragons is is that the islands have actually the cooled blood that fell from the sky of their of their god and the hottest blood fell on the set fell in the south and to this very day the sea there is still boiling like literally boiling um so that's just, a, you know, it's this thing you get like three lines in the whole box set. And right, yeah, yeah. But it's a great idea, you know. Um, how do you get across the boiling sea to find out what the fire giants are doing? You don't, you know. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I imagine there there was hope that there would be supplemental material. Like that's kind of the standard TSR Watsy playbook yeah. is you throw out a box set, it, people like it, and then you you know, the next book and the next book and the adventures. And that's how you, you know, you yeah. uh, dole this out and build it. And unfortunately, Council Worms, I, I guess it didn't sell very well. Again, it's a very little known box set. I'm setting, yeah. I'm kind of curious if, you know, if people do enjoy these episodes that we're doing, how many people will have heard of this one before? If this will be like, yeah. what? Uh, I think there's <laughs> going to be a lot of that. There's yeah, a one yeah. out there? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it, it is. It is one of the more unusual ones um, in that it is it's just this one box set. There's like seven Dragon Dragon Magazine articles, I think, by memory. Um, one adventure in Dungeon Magazine issue 48, um, and then the RPGA did two adventures. Um, one was the Cult of the Swamp Lord, which hooks into one of the little um, subplots that's going on in the background. Must remember to come back to that. Okay. And the other one was the other one was this uh, little adventure called Role Reversal. Um, and in Role Reversal, a dragon captures a a daughter of an important gnome, and so you've got to go rescue the dam rescue the damsel from the dragon. Um, I completely messed that up. You might have to edit that bit. <laughs> so it's the other way around. A important gnome's daughter has captured a young baby dragon. 
and you've got to go rescue the dragon from the damsel. That yeah, there we okay. go. That that's the role reversal we were looking for. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, but it is one box set, and I do wonder though if the author Bill Slavexic knew that from the get go, and the reason I say that is is because this thing is absolutely jam packed with little details and adventure hooks um all the way through mm -hmm. and you know, a lot of this stuff you could run a whole campaign just doing what's going on in the underdark if you like the subterranean areas of the council of worms isn't in on the random encounter card so the box set comes with three books three books 12 cards and three posters and the on the cards there are random encounter tables and some of them will have like a little superscript one or two or three and you look that up and it's like what now the bullywugs have trained giant worms that use purple worm statistics and they use psychic powers to control them <laughs> yeah okay um so there's a lot of stuff like that uh that are these little tweak tweaks to like the monsters or hints at other stuff, other storylines that are going on and they only appear in the cards. And then mm. in the books, there's a whole bunch of other little tweaks. Right. Um, one of them is the, the Juagar worship shadows, like the shadow undead monsters. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the Juagar have a cult that worship these shadows, but in secret, the shadows are controlled by a powerful Dracovich. Okay. Um, and there's a whole thing going on with the Abolith and slaving, obviously. But in this particular instance, the cave fishers of the Council of Worms setting are actually intelligent. And they work for the Abolith going up to the upper caverns, capturing people and dragging them back down again. There's all this crazy stuff, but it's right. one or two sentences each. Right. And, yeah. and that, I think that kind of leads me into the next question. And I don't, don't forget to circle back to the thing you want to talk about is, you know, like what sort of adventures does this setting support over others? Cause you know, you can play D and D however you want. And when I play it, there's very little combat. It's very social and political, but mm -hmm. by default D and D is often go out, kill things, take their stuff, do it again. But I don't yeah. think that seems to fit this idea of council worms. So it feels like this is going to be more of a political game, a uh, social game yeah. where you're trying to navigate, you know, different factions, these different dragon groups, but is there an element of going off and fighting other things? Like, like what kind of adventure are you going to have in a council of worms? Yeah. Game? Yeah. So, yeah. So with the council of worms game, um, you know, there were four adventures given in the box set. And one of the things that I found disappointing about council of worms, um, you know, I, 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 I'm not, I'm not saying that Council of Worms is flawless. There are things that, that might explain that maybe why it didn't sell as well, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. I keep meaning to come back to the art, but anyway, uh, the, uh, the adventures. Um, so in book two, they set up and they describe in loving detail, this complex political setup that's trying to stop the war between good and evil and the clans working, trying to work together, but at the same time, they're like sneaking around, trying to like do little raids and things that the council doesn't notice and all this other stuff is going on. And then in book three, where the adventures are, they pretty much don't use any of that, um, mm. <laughs> which is, there's, there is a, there's, there is in one of the adventures, you have to rescue a white dragon, um, which is, you know, in a standard D&D campaign, the white dragon would be, you know, on the other team usually. Um, but in Council of Worms, you know that the white dragon is probably evil, but you've still got to rescue it. Right. It's, it's that whole, and that's, the, that's pretty much the only allusion in those four adventures to this setup that they build in book two um so the 
the four adventures are the first one is you hatch and there are kidnappers in the cave and they're trying to kidnap you i won't go into too much detail i don't want to do any spoilers sure i hate spoilers um the second adventure is the rescue the white dragon um the third adventure deals with frost giant raiders uh which kind of like two of the threats from outside as well as the humans who are always held up as these boogeymen that might come back one day uh, are the fire giants to the south and the frost giants to the north and so the third adventure deals with that and then the fourth adventure is basically this old school like dungeon death maze but scaled up to dragon size (laughs) (laughs) and I just found that really disappointing. You know, uh, like I've, I've, I've seen so many death mazes. I don't need another one. Right. Um, yeah, but, you know, the, those four adventures would probably be 10% of what you actually need to run the Council of Worms game. Okay. Um, because, you know, it covers 12 levels, like an entire character's, um advancement worth of material and you start out as these wormlings who are working for the custodians of concordance you know carrying messages and guarding sheep or doing you know just scut work you're nobody right and then as you get up levels once you get past 25 years of age you're like your foster period ends and you go back to your own clan um and then you're probably working for your clan lords and things still but it has this sort of zero to hero aspect about it in that you start off with these, yeah, you're a dragon and dragons are in charge. And even as a baby dragon, you can like boss gnomes around, mm-hmm. but you're the lowest, you're the lowest rung of the top of the totem pole, you know? Right. Yep. Yep. And then as the campaign progresses, you theoretically, you gain, you gain size and strength obviously, because you're a dragon as you get older, but you also gain political power. You might think about doing long-term projects. You go, you know what? I'm going to build a city. (laughs) Um, You know, all that stuff is sort of implied in how the campaign is set up, but there is, they leave it to you to use role-playing to do all of that rather than giving you any specific frameworks. Yeah. Um, like you might have seen in, say, the birthright setting or something like that. Um, and, you know, if you if you ran a campaign, there are obvious themes you could draw on. Once you get past the uh, working for other people, you know, as the custodians, you work for them, and then you go work for your clan, and you might do, you might do um, covert raids against neighbouring uh, clans. But those have got to be covert because you don't want the council to get wind of it. Right. They'll come, they'll send enforcers around to sort you out. So everything's got to be on the, on the sly a little bit. So you, there, there is that element of, you know, covert raids and things you can do at that level. Um, but as you get higher in levels, you start ruling. And then at the end of the campaign, assuming that the dragon's, don't keep their shit together. Sorry, Australian. Um, assuming that the dragons, <laughs> assuming that the dragons don't manage to hold the peace, um, then you might have a war breakout, mm-hmm. or maybe that maybe the human invaders come back, the dragon slayers come back, or maybe the giants organize themselves, and you know, so you can do a war at the end. Yeah. And then the very the very last bit of that campaign is this idea of trying to cheat death. Um, do you want to try to become a Dracolich? Do you want to try to ascend and become a god in your own right? So mm-hmm. that uh, that last bit, they sort of talk about dragons and death in the books, but they don't really give you any ways to do any of those things yeah. <laughs> in terms of rules. Yeah. Yeah, and, um, and I, I hate to keep doing it, but I it, there's just the way you're describing that, I'm getting very strong Eberron vibes. 
And again, yeah. it makes me think the Keith Baker because the way the houses work, which I mean, you could also say that at Game of Thrones is that, you know, you're born into yeah. a house and you have that sort of immediacy of these are the people that are in charge of you. They give you missions, you work for them. But as you get more powerful, you get more powerful in that clan, that organization. Yeah. But yeah, I definitely get some getting some vibes from that. Uh, I, obviously, I've never played in a Council of Worms game but my thought is if I were to run something and we're going to kind of transition in, into some advice for that would be yep. where maybe you have the players create characters who were on the council and then you have them have their player characters. And so like maybe you dedicate part of a session or maybe like off off table time, like maybe it's like through text or something where they're doing the, the machinations of the council and doing this political stuff. And then you, the characters are actually going out trying to like gain victory points or political points by yeah. you know doing that kind of thing. Might be a fun way to kind of have these different striata of power levels, but not necessarily have to go all the way from zero to twelve. Um, yeah, yeah. So I want to ask, you know, do you have a particular memory that's like a favorite memory as either a player or a DM from a Council of Worms campaign that you have played? If you haven't actually played one, do you have some like thing that if you ever get to, you want to do in one? Yeah, so I think the um, the thing is, we've been over my history a little bit with Council of Worms and you know when it came out I didn't pick it up initially and I've only come back to it later um, and I'm setting up to play the monster of all Council of Worms campaigns as we speak mm -hmm. uh, which generates a lot of material which ends up on the piazza and I'll be leveraging a lot of the innovations that have been in the fifth edition of Dungeons and Dragons to run that campaign. So, you know, in fifth edition D&D, there are rules for factions and things like that, and patrons, um, all stuff that can be leveraged to give it that more political feel right. and to sort of keep track the, that aspect of it. Um, but uh, yeah, I uh, found out, uh, have not actually played a Council of Worms campaign yet. Uh, Really looking forward to it. My players are starting to get psyched about it as well, so that's good. Um, yep. But uh, yeah, it's um, yeah, it's one of those things that it, it didn't grab me on a first flick through back in the day, when and also with a limited budget. Um, but uh, coming back to it now, I'm excited to give it a go. So I again, I have also not played one, but I did. <laughs> steal an idea and and i don't remember all the specifics but you touched on a little bit about the idea of like um as you level up you kind of take on the aspects of the dragon and i believe that there are other settings that do that explicitly and mm -hmm. i did my own homebrew version of it but i i ran a campaign a couple times different groups where i had this great big war that was brewing between this great gold dragon and this great red dragon called golden claw and crimson claw of course yeah, yeah um, cool. both both of which were polymorphed into humanoid forms and were gathering uh supporters and workers and, and and warriors for them to fight the war you know this proxy war um and so um you were basically were working for this organization called crimson claw or golden claw and you were a talon so if you were a soldier of this organization you were called a talon and as you leveled up within the D, &D world you became you got these things like you would start to get like golden um scales and you, you get pluses to armor your eyes would change and you would get dark vision and this was all just bs homebrew stuff i made up but at the highest level you would actually get wings and you would be able to fly uh so i never actually played a council of worms but i played two campaigns with heavily influenced from my reading of council of worms yeah. uh and I've, I've mentioned this many many times if anyone's listening has listened to a lot of my stuff they've heard me talk okay. about this npc called graydon and i've used graydon so many times and Graydon is basically dragon if you switch the G and the D around so instead of dragon uh -huh. it's Graydon yeah. so if you ever run into Graydon in one of my games 
it is a polymorph gold dragon and that you should they, they will be there to help you if you will do what they say uh, so then i guess we'll transition since you're you're working towards this maybe you have some ideas what is some advice you would give to someone who's about to run a game of council worms and then i'll just throw out the question you can answer it together what is some advice that you would give to a player who's about to play in a council worms game okay so i i think like advice um first thing is is that you know the setting and the box sets um i have in passing mentioned the art before this is a second edition product Somewhere around third edition, they came up with this really great idea of the dragon anatomy being a bit like a big cat, mm -hmm. you know, with a tail and the wings. And the wings are supported by these heavily muscled shoulders and things. Well, the castle worms predates all of that. And so the dragons inside the illustrations, um, they're, they're, they're either like humanoids in rubber suits. <laughs> or they're these fat lizards and both kinds the wings are just kind of stuck on they don't look like they can work and yeah uh, maybe that's one of the reasons why i didn't pick it up at first and yeah. one of the reasons why there was just one box set um but uh so you know look elsewhere for your images you want to show your characters um and if second edition isn't your jam, then, you know, because of the influence of Council of Worms and its author on subsequent editions, um, particularly third edition, then, you know, for third, if you want to play in third edition, you can pick up the Draconomicon from third edition, and that gives you pretty much everything that's in the Council of Worms rules-wise anyway. Right. Um, and, yeah. There was also a Dragon Magazine 320, which has a, a Dragon Race class in it too, for third edition. Okay. Um, uh, if you want to run fifth edition, then check out my stuff on the PR. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll put we'll put links in there if you send me yeah. links. I'll put them in there so people can get to it as well. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So just you know, treat. Look at what's in the fluff of the box text and the background and everything that's given, but. Don't feel like you have to run it in second edition if you don't want to run it in second edition. I yep. suppose that's the first thing. Okay. Um, uh, the first adventure given in the box set is your standard setup for a Council of Worms campaign. And if you're running your first Council of Worms campaign or if you're a DM without a lot of experience, that's probably the way to go. Yeah. Um, if you're a bit more experienced, you can go off book and run a campaign where all the dragons are from one clan or whatever. But if you're new to Council of Worms, and especially if you're a relatively inexperienced DM, that first adventure is a really nice little setup for the campaign, you know? Mm -hmm. And you, you start at the beginning of your dragon's life and you follow it through. I mean, it's literally um, your birth, right? Like you, you hatch yeah, and then the game starts. <laughs> Yes, but you yeah. hatch. The first, the first adventure is you hatch. <laughs> so you don't even have to come um, up with a background, you know, no. like all the stuff that players sometimes struggle with and maybe sometimes go overboard on. You don't have to worry about that. Yeah. You're literally like crack, crack, crack. Ah, yeah. Go. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, that's a great way to start a campaign. Um, and then I, I suppose the other thing is, is that you know you have to be prepared to fill in the gaps. You've got four adventures that are in the box set you might be able to find some of the other three that are around good luck with those rpga ones they're impossible to find hmm. um so you're gonna have to write a lot of your own material but you know that's an opportunity to put your own stamp on it and to follow those hooks and things that interest you um but there is a lot of help in the box for you so there's all those little adventure hooks that are in the uh, random encounter cards. There's all the hooks that are in and locations and things that are described in a few sentences in the box set. Picking any one of those and filling it out will turn into an adventure straight away. Right. Um, and, you know, you're given a huge map of the Council of Worms world and you're given random encounter tables for a reason. Hmm. You know, um, they kind of gloss over it 
in the in the box set with the adventures. We're just flying from the Erie to the adventure sites. That's weeks of travel. Mm-hmm. Um, even for a dragon who's like gunning it along, it's right. weeks of travel. So you know, before the sessions, if you roll those random encounters, turn them into little vignette stories of their own, you'll very rapidly fill up your campaign without scratching your head trying to, you know, wait for you know, inspiration to strike. Right. So I think that's the advice for the DM. Um, oh, yeah, and downtime. Like, give your players enough adventures to get them enough experience. Mm-hmm. But dragons have to be a particular age before they can level up following the age categories in the monster manual. So like use that time, make it into downtime, maybe, you know, discuss it during with text or emails or whatever between adventures and fill in those years a little bit as you go. Just right. to give it that epic sweep, you know? Um yeah. So players, I suppose. Yeah. So um, if you're going to play a dragon, like I'm going, to, I'm going to replay a Council of Worms, what advice would you give me to make sure I get the most yeah. out of it as a player? I think, you know, as, as a player, you, uh, again, the way that it's set up in the box set is a particular way of playing. But as a first Council of Worms campaign, that's probably the best way to go. So, you know, you're going to be hatching brand new into this world and you don't need to know a lot. So that's great. Right, um, yeah. And you can pick that up as you go. Um, and, you know, make a character that is a dragon and a kindred. And maybe one of your group could do the B option, which is being one of these half dragons that starts out like an elf or a gnome and then slowly transforms. But when you're making your dragon, lean into the psychology of the dragons, which is supported by the game quite a bit, you know. You know, dragons are supposed to be arrogant and greedy and take a really long view. And so, you know, the game requires you to hoard gold to go up levels. You have to actually, like, build up your hoard of treasure. Mm. Otherwise, you can't level up. So that kind of sort of gives you a bit of a, a, a switch. to say, Hey, go get gold. Go get gold. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so... You know, lead into that, you know, like imagine what it'd be like to be this huge, greedy, arrogant predator. Um, and even if you're a gold dragon and you're, you know, just and wise and good, you're still also huge and greedy and arrogant. So <laughs> lead into that. Um, and then for your kindred character, you know, this is a world that not only showcases the dragons, we know from the kit choices and things that they have in there that it was intended to showcase the elves and the dwarves and the gnomes as well. So, you know, learn about elves, dwarves, and gnomes, pick one of those kits if you can, if you want, and sort of get stuck into that culture. Um, you could pick up the, one of the complete books for your race, the elf book, the gnome book, or the dwarf book. Or if you're playing a later edition of D&D, there's plenty of lore out there on the internet. You know, just type in D&D Elf and you'll get everything you ever needed to know about D&D Elves nowadays. Right. Um, yeah. So, yeah, lean into that non-human aspect of the world. Um, and then I think the final thing is for players is once you've played a couple of sessions, think about what really long-term goal do you want to achieve and let your dm know about that mm-hmm. so he can sort of think about it you know are you going to be the founder of a great city we're talking about goals that will take a dragon lifetime a thousand years right to, you know are you going to be a founder of a great city are you going to cheat death and become a dracolich um you know are you going to try and conquer all of the council of worms islands and get rid of the council, you know, like, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's nice to have goals. It's nice to have goals. Are you yeah. going to found your own, less ambitiously, are you at least going to found, found your own clan of dragons? Because the clans aren't static. Um, you can found a new clan. So there's, there's these big goals. And that's, it's about starting at nothing and that slow building of power until you reach, you know, 
1,000 plus years old and you're this incredible, powerful being that rules over a large area of land. Mm-hmm. Um, it's got that epic scope about it. I think that's one aspect of that type of campaign that I would find interesting. I don't know that I would enjoy it, <laughs> but I definitely would find it interesting to try is yeah. that, okay, we're having this adventure, you're a wormling. And then after this adventure, we're going to dislike 13 years have passed before we play session <laughs> yeah. two. So what are you going to do in those 13 years? And again, what, what process are we going to use as a group? Is it going to be, are we going to go to somewhere like an online forum where we can do that? Like a, you know, play by post type thing. Does everybody have to just send an email? Cause you know, some players won't, uh, mm-hmm. are we going to play a session yeah. that where we just talk like story time? It's not role playing time. It's story time where we talk about this. Cause I think that could be something that I don't do a lot of in like, quote unquote standard games. That would be interesting. Like you've got 25 years that you have lived in between that adventure and this adventure. How deep are we going to go into what you've done? Cause that could be a lot of, you know, for maybe someone who doesn't DM, that could be a yeah. lot of like stretching your storytelling legs. Like, you know, tell me a story like yep. a bard of what you've done that we're not, we're not going to play, but, but it has to have happened for this game to continue. Yep. Again, I don't know that it would be great fun, but it would be interesting to see if it's fun. Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of those things that's not that, well, it's just not really supported in the box set. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, it would have been really nice if they'd given you some, some ideas about how to handle that aspect of it. Because um, I really don't believe that they expect you to play 1,000 years of game time <laughs> yeah just full of adventures like there's got to be some gaps in there um and yet there's very little about how you might handle those gaps uh some sort of a framework for handling that would have been really nice mm-hmm. yeah all right um, well thank you so much for joining me i've had an absolute pleasure getting to speak with you carl uh i just i, yeah. I like your energy i like your enthusiasm you're not you clearly you did homework i can see you looking at notes so thank you so much <laughs> um is there anywhere you would send people obviously we've mentioned the piazza already i will put links in there if there's any specific place mm-hmm. you can help me i'll send people to but is there anywhere else that you could would suggest people go look for information. Like obviously they can go to half price books. Maybe they'll find the copy that I sold. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know if DMs guild, but I'm guessing drive through probably has stuff, but is there anywhere else that you would send people to, to find and stuff about, about the setting? Yeah. I, look, I think, you know, because the setting is one of those lesser known ones, there's, there's not a lot of resources out there. Um, the, the Piazza is, as we've already mentioned, is a great place to discuss any of these older D&D settings. Um, and that is one of the more active Council of Worms communities about, around. There's a Council of Worms fans Facebook page, but it's only moderate traffic. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I suppose uh, I, that's really it. Um, <laughs> you might... <laughs> If you're interested in playing a dragon uh, and you're playing second edition, um, you might want to check out my article in RPG Review issue nine, which was basically my own homebrew rules for playing a dragon in other campaign settings um, that I wrote before I got Council Worms. <laughs> um, <laughs> and we use that we use that for literally decades. Right. Um, yeah. So. And then, yeah. Um, and I think that's about it. Uh, there's a few other articles in RPG Review detailing some of the monsters that are in Council of Worms for the fifth edition of D&D. Um, fifth edition of D&D doesn't have a lot of these giant monsters that you actually need to fight dragons. Right. Uh, so, you know, things like Gargantua um, are in Council of Worms. Um, whereas they're not a, as big a feature of the ca- other campaign settings, except perhaps Oriental Adventures, if you remember the old character stuff. Um, so, yeah, okay. I think that's about it, really. <laughs> now, now, do you live online anywhere? People want to come interact with you. Uh, obviously, in the Piazza, they can interact with you, but do you have a Twitter handle or Instagram or anywhere people could go uh, check out Carl? Yeah, yeah. So um, I'm pretty old school. My uh, social media presence, um is 
very limited. <laughs> um, so you'll see me around in various forums. Uh, I, and I go by the handle uh, Coronades. I will spell that for you later. Yeah. Uh, Coronades is the species name for Australian ravens. Okay. Um, which are especially crow-like ravens. So they're like humanoid, it's coronoid. Okay. Um, so coronoides. Um, but the only forum I'm currently checking regularly is the Piazza. So okay. um, it's kind of a one-stop shop. <laughs> uh, well, there's nothing wrong yeah. with that. You, you yeah. either diversify or specify. And I think you've got very specific. You go, one place, that's where you can find me. That's where we'll that's talk about you. this stuff. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Uh, and again, if you just, if you'll send me those links, I'll put all that in the show notes so people make yeah. it easy if anyone's interested and in, and in go and check it out. Um, cool. so once again, seriously, Carl, thank you so much. I have an app, have had an absolute pleasure getting to talk to you and getting to meet you here. Um, as always, we'll kind of throw this out. If anyone is listening to this, if you have played in the Council of Worms, uh, let us know, like in the comment yeah, on this yeah. episode, talk about what you did, what you loved. If you've never heard of this, but now you want to, same thing. It's always great to get feedback from these episodes and it keeps us going and doing more and more things like this. So uh, I, I'm just going to say I'm really keen to hear other people's experiences with Council of Worms um, because there are so few Council of Worms fans out there. Um, <laughs> and, even, and even if you're not a fan, but you've played a few sessions and you had some fun, let me know. Yeah, and, and I hopefully, hopefully some new fans will be created from this process. Like, yeah. it would absolutely thrill me if someone's like, you know what, I want to check that out, and they go find an online resource and check it out for the first time. That would be worth all the time and effort we put into that. Uh, but with that, we're going to close things off. So once again, Carl, thank you for joining me. And those of you listening, thank you for listening, and we will see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the RPG Academy podcast. We do this show out of love for the hobby and the desire to be ambassadors, welcoming more people into this community. All of our website content will always be free to use and utilize, but there are expenses related to the show. And if you enjoy what we do here, then please consider supporting us in some way. You can do so as simply as rating or reviewing us on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. If you're going to purchase anything through Amazon or DriveThruRPG, consider using our affiliate links first, and then we'll get a small percentage sent back to us. You can do a single direct donation through PayPal using the paypal.me slash the RPG Academy, or consider joining our Patreon campaign at patreon.com slash the RPG Academy. And for a donation as low as $1 a month, you'll get access to lots of extra goodies, including bonus minisodes, invites to monthly one-shot games, one-sheet adventures, and more. Please consider following us on Twitter and Facebook, or join our Discord, where we like to try to keep the conversation going with our fans as best we can, and are always looking to talk and chat more. Or do none of that. Just continue to listen and enjoy our show. Because honestly, that's enough. Thanks. And remember, if you're having fun, you're doing it right. We'll see you next time. The music used for our intro and outro is Fly a Kite by Spectacular Sound Productions, used under the Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike License.